problem is that the, the menstrual cycle is a good indicator for most women to find out if something's actually working for you because mm. you should have an absence of PMS. You should have a um, certain amount of clarity. You shouldn't be floored by the pain, uh, the blood sugar dysregulation, the cramps and that, the swelling. Um, and yeah, that, that, that kind of affects the, the nervous system, the central nervous system, the brain, because the more estrogen that you have, the more fluids that you ac- accumulate and edema that you see in the tissues like the ankles or your hand swelling that also permeates across into the central nervous system and, and aspects of brain function and perhaps that's just one of the issues why you know the premenstrual headaches occur is that uh, an excess of estrogen welcome to the win at life podcast a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can break free from restrictive diets and build a body and life you love I'm Kenny Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and your host for this episode. Today, I'm sitting down with our good friend, Tomo Littlewood. Tomo has his master's in endocrinology, is an expert in all things to do with the endocrine system and hormones, and is about to embark on his PhD. In this episode, I pick Tomo's brain about the hormone estrogen and some of the misconceptions around estrogen. He reveals what actually causes estrogen dominance, how too much estrogen suppresses the metabolism how stress contributes to estrogen dominance, why carbs can actually help your body detoxify excess estrogen, and why low-carb diets can cause estrogen dominance, why and how over-exercising plays a part in estrogen dominance, and why your menstrual cycle is a good indicator of your health and can tell you whether or not your nutrition and training approach is working for you. So if you're a woman who suffers from painful, heavy, or irregular periods, menopausal symptoms, cellulite, or any other estrogen-dominant symptoms, you'll get so much actionable info out of this podcast to help you improve your metabolism and balance your hormones. As always, take a screenshot and share your biggest takeaways on Instagram stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-E-L-D. Let's spread the word and free other women from restrictive diets. Hi, Keith. Keith Littlewood, or known as Tomo. That's his nickname. Everyone will know him on uh, Instagram, one of our favourite uh, poms. He's got his um, uh, master's in endocrinology, and he's actually just about to embark on a crazy, not crazy PhD, but it is a bit crazy probably a PhD, isn't it? It's a, a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of money, but which will be um, which will be incre- incredible. Uh, and, yeah, it's so good to have you back back on the show. Good to be back, to have a chat and a wander and ramble off on different subjects. Yeah. We just had a good catch-up chat chat before. Um, but today um, we were going to pick Keith's brain about estrogen um, and some of the misconceptions around estrogen and when, you know, because you, you do need estrogen, like I think I want to say that, but it's when it's you have too much and you become estrogen dominant that's when you start to get all the issues and it can suppress your metabolism. And we're going to talk about some of the issues. Um, and it's, you know, I get people messaging me. I was just telling Keith yesterday, a white lady messaged me on Instagram, just attacking me about some post I'd written, you know, estrogen is a female hormone kitty, you know, like why, why should you be saying that you shouldn't have too much of it? And I sent her some reading and some links and I said, listen to this podcast. Oh, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm t- that's, he's a man. He wouldn't know anything about, you know, and then I sent her a video from that, you know, Barbara Seaman, the lady that wrote that book, um, the greatest, exp- is that what it's called? The greatest experiment against women oh it's a good one it's a good one um but yeah she obviously wasn't having a bar of it so you know i think there's just like i wish that i knew this like so like 
10 years ago, um, you know, and I wish I was educated properly and I knew the truth about estrogen and what actually um, causes it. So maybe to start with, let's talk about estrogen and its role in the female body. Sure. And, and the misconception that estrogen is a female hormone because men have a certain amount of estrogen and it can be used for, for a number of processes. Um, but obviously we, we have the three types of estrogen, E1, E2, E3. E2 estradiol is the, is the kind of most prolific uh, hormone in the body. And as I said, it's not specifically just for females. Unfortunately, uh, females tend to have a, a higher abundance or ratio of estrogens. And sometimes that's where the problems can start to arise, primarily because estrogen does have this prolif- proliferative effect or growth effect. Uh, you know, in a menstrual cycle, in the, in the uh, premenstrual and the follicular phase, you have increases of estrogen, which is kind of like weight building for the uterus, right? It's yeah. there to weight training for the for the uterus is there to kind of um, increase the tissue and perhaps get it ready for a, a successful implantation and, and pregnancy to occur mm-hmm. now the problem is is that estrogen tends to stimulate glycolysis which tends to be this wasting of, of, of glucose and when we have problems that tend to occur perhaps later on in, in the uh, say the luteal phase for example when there's not enough progesterone to rescue the effects of estrogen mm-hmm. which is ongoing glycolysis where we start wasting sugar um, and it's uh, it can be problematic then primarily because if you can't restrain estrogen it has these proliferative effects and that's why you get you know sore breasts uh, uterine cramps other uh, tissue issues like edema and swelling that tend to occur when estrogen tends to be rampant Mm. so heavy periods painful periods pms cellulite you know, menopausal issues, all those things, you know, like when I write about the women, like, oh, my God, that's me, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, and that, I think that's the problem is that, is that there's, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about the, what estrogen is and does and also the problems associated with progesterone. Um, and bearing in mind is that when, when, when um, luteal phase occurs, you know, the corpus luteum is a very progesterone-rich structure that allows progesterone to to offset the effects of estrogen and inhibit glycolysis and inhibit the increases in tissue growth that tend to occur. And maybe, Keith, just to go back, so for the women that are listening to this that maybe don't understand, like, let's a quick overview of the female menstrual cycle. So the first half is the follicular phase where the estrogen rises, preparing for your body to release that egg. Um, And then the follicle releases the egg and then it turns into this corpus, corpus, the, I can't believe you can't, the corpus luteum, which then sits there and releases progesterone, right? Yeah. To basically for the for the second half of the cycle. Yeah, and yeah. and to maintain the, uh, the 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 likelihood of the egg being able to be fertilized. Mm. Now, another uh, component of that is that the corpus luteum is actually quite a, a high vitamin A using structure. Mm. So the, you know, this is where aspects like adequate vitamin A liver come into play. Uh, and also to a degree, the beta carotenoids, but less so because, you know, the beta carotenoid excess is relatively easy to achieve. But the, hmm. the, the, the pro, uh, sorry, the preformed vitamin A that we get from liver, for example, is, a, is an integral component of a, of a healthy um, luteal phase and therefore ovulation. So if you're low in vitamin A and low in progesterone, or perhaps you're under ongoing chronic stress, which diminishes your ability to produce progesterone. This mm. is where the luteal phase, which a lot of people tend to blame for the problems, is not mm. the problem phase at all. It's because the, the, the rising elements of increased stress, 
increase estrogens, increase proliferation, mm. increase regulation to blood sugar levels mm. makes the, uh, the luteal phase seem problematic, but it's not the luteal phase as such that's driving the problems. It's the inability of progesterone, perhaps vitamin A to be regulated to enhance this kind of smooth luteal phase. Uh, and and just quickly, I just want to go back to something you said about, because I know that women will be wondering about this, um, you know, because we have women who are like vegetarians or they're like, oh, look, you know, I don't eat any meat and I won't eat the liver. And going back to the beta carotene, you know, there's the, the, the usable form of vitamin A, which is found in animal food, so the liver. And then yeah. there's beta carotene, which is, say, like in your carrots and sweet potatoes. So your liver has to actually... Um, convert that into the usable form of vitamin A, right? And it can be quite stressful on the liver, especially if you're already stressed and your thyroid function isn't great. Yeah, I mean, there, there tends to be a synergistic effect of, of estrogen rising and thyroid suppression. Mm. So you have increases in like sex hormone binding globulin, but estrogen can effectively suppress thyroid hormone uh, production. It can suppress the thyroid gland itself. It can stimulate uh, hyperplasia of the thyroid gland. And that can, can come from a, 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 an effect of also stimulating the pituitary production of thyroid stimulating hormones. So you get this double whammy effect. Mm. Now, it's very easy in a low energy state for the liver to become compromised by one estrogen, which increases the amount of B vitamins that tend to be needed. And also, um, when you, when you have an abundance of these beta carotenoids, um, these kind of orangey, fleshy things, sweet potatoes, I was working with someone yesterday, they said, well, why am I so fatigued? And I was looking at the diet, I said, you're eating sweet potato every single day and you're also in a low energy state. Don't underestimate the effects of what a low energy state, a sluggish liver, and then abundance of the beta carotenoids can do to suppress liver function and ultimately thyroid function. So there tends to be many things that need to be considered sometimes. It can, can appear like a minefield and that's why sometimes you need to drop certain bits of information in because it can become quite overwhelming. And isn't, that, that, it, isn't it interesting? So I just want to pop in there that like all of those things that you talked about that this guy is, was doing, it's like what the typical fitness industry diet, you know, lower calories. You know, I remember I used to always eat sweet potato cause I didn't want to eat potato cause I thought that white potato was bad. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's the, it, it's encourages doing all of these things, which actually, is going to affect your thyroid function and, you know, cause you to have a sluggish liver and people go, Oh, but wow. Like I thought I was doing everything right. I thought I was being really healthy. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the thing is uh, you, you don't notice it until you start to co- kind of correlate the negative symptoms with what you're doing. And to the extent that what you're doing is working for you, you don't, you, you know, you have an absence of kind of energy, digestion, sleep, mood, fertility issues. Right. So, mm. uh, I think that until people kind of will whip onto this new diet and it can have a, a particularly productive effect for short term, but then long term, you perhaps don't see that these beneficial effects keep, keep um, maintaining themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and I think that's, that, that's the problem is that the, the menstrual cycle is a good indicator for most women to find out if something's actually working for you because mm-hmm. you should have an absence of PMS. You should have, um, certain amount of clarity you shouldn't be floored by the pain uh, the blood sugar dysregulation the cramps and that the swelling um and yeah that that, that kind of affects the, the nervous system the central nervous system the brain because of the more estrogen that you have the more fluids that you ac- accumulate and edema that you see in the tissues like the ankles or your hand swelling that also permeates across into the central nervous system and, and aspects of brain function 
And perhaps that's just one of the issues why, you know, the premenstrual headaches occur is that an excess of estrogen, dysregulated blood sugar levels, perhaps a lack of carbon dioxide, which estrogen has the capacity to dysregulate your energy producing structures, particularly the aerobic system. Mm. So when you lose the ability for the aerobic system to work optimally, because glycolysis, remember, switches over from that that uh, efficient energy breakdown of carbohydrates and fats to glycolysis where you're wasting uh, glucose uh, and, and uh, ultimately you can break fats down as well with that. And that can be problematic. But estrogen can, can disrupt that optimal aerobic capacity, which allows you to produce more carbon dioxide. And instead of producing more carbon dioxide, when glycolysis is left un, unrestrained, which doesn't necessarily happen all the time, but to the extent that that's chronic will diminish the amount of carbon dioxide available you don't have enough carbon dioxide available, the smooth muscle cells don't get to relax efficiently. And you can imagine those smooth muscle cells that Mm. uh, control uh, blood flow around the brain not being able to relax efficiently. And there are other things like high serotonin, which causes uh, vasoconstriction and arterial constriction. And and you can imagine this kind of tight area in the brain that's not relaxing Mm. and Mm. therefore headaches can ensue. So, you know, that's just one of the the, the many issues that, that are at hand. It's interesting you talk about like, and I notice this a lot too with women in our program, like puffy, like holding the water when they're estrogen yeah. dominant. I was, I did a podcast with a client, um, and she's been with us for a while now, and I remember her, she came to our event, and back then she had hadn't really gone all in on the food, and she's still drinking some alcohol, and she was on thyroid medication, and she had like heavy, quite heavy periods, and then she just we had a conversation and she just decided, okay, I'm just going to do this and stop the drinking and went all in. And I did the interview with her and like her fat, like everything, she just doesn't look puffy anymore. Her neck yeah. shrunk down. She's off her thyroid medication. You know, it's just, it's so, um, it's just so amazing. Yeah, the yeah. changes that can happen from just doing some simple things like not drinking and, you know, improving your diet, lowering stress, um, yeah, and, and so I think women are just so confused. They're so, you know, think that they're doing all of the right things. So this probably leads into the next question. You know, what causes estrogen dominance? Well, it can be uh, as far back as inheritable traits from parents and how much stress and damage that they've accumulated over their lifetime. Mm. Uh, because, you know, to the extent that you accumulate estrogen will have an effect on how certain genes are expressed. Uh, for example, how, how we, well your thyroid works. And certainly there's plenty of data to support that these traits are inheritable and passed on. So if you have someone that, that's accumulated this stress uh, from their parents mm-hmm. and perhaps their formative years, bearing in mind that the, the formation of the nervous system, the formation of the, um, the brain, how the body grows is dependent on thyroid function. That's the key driver to, to states. And when you see high estrogen traits, they can disrupt thyroid um, function, physiology, and morphogenesis. So even in utero, if there's high estrogen traits and other stresses, be they pollutants, they can affect how you grow within 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 the, uh, your mother. And those offspring traits are there. And to the extent that they're either enhanced by a shitty environment, uh, you know, absent parents, not enough emotional kind of support, inadequate diets that can lead to the, to the stress that you often see teenagers kind of starting with. Mm. And literally I have a a very high ratio of female clients that have gone through some kind of disordered eating in their teens. Mm. Uh, 
or application of contraceptive pills mm -hmm. to manage their menstrual cycle. And, and, you know, that's just one of the very common things where they'll go to the doctor with menstrual cramps. No one's assessing the stress they're under, what mm -hmm. their par parenting has been like, the, the, the perceived stress of the individual, what their diet's like. And, you know, mm -hmm. even at some of the kind of high school things where they're perhaps, you know, taking part in ath athletic endeavours mm -hmm. where they're putting their body to extremes and under eating. Yeah. Um, that can suppress what's going on because to the extent that your physiology is suppressed, you know, you won't uh, perhaps exhibit those traits. You know, how many clients you tend to see where go, I don't eat in the morning because I just feel better. Yeah. No, because they just don't like eating because the negative symptoms occur. But the neg negative symptoms are there to tell them, hey, something's not quite right. Mm. Stopping back eating and, and restricting everything isn't necessarily going to have the effect that you want to get the, the, the resolution that you want and ultimately get healthier. Mm. So people go on restricting. I had a call from a lady the other day. She said, I really want to work with you. I, I don't have a, a menstrual cycle. I'm constipated. Um, I'm under a lot of stress. My hormones are over the place. She goes, I really want to work with you, but I, I, I intermittent fast and I don't want to change that. And I said, <laughs> I said okay, that, that's great. I said, I'll be honest with you. I can't take you on as a client if you're not prepared to even entertain the fact that you're disordered eating. And to be honest, if you're intermittent fasting every other day, it's disordered eating because you're not going to be able to create the change that you want because you don't have enough energy. And you could apply it to a certain level of anorexia to a degree, right? Mm. Because you're malnourished and you're not going to change the digestive system because that's energy dependent. It's thyroid dependent. Mm. You're not going to be able to reg regulate your hormone responses because that's energy dependent, thyroid dependent, progesterone dependent, you know, and all of these things. And it, it becomes, it, it's, uh, it becomes easy for people just to sit in that kind of, sell as it were of saying hey i i'm just going to keep my symptoms uh suppressed because that's the best way to deal with it but i i think that's that's when you can start to see it can be starting it's a generational thing that keeps it, it keeps going on and on until it's arrested until somebody's given the, the appropriate tools to understand what's going on and it's sometimes hard for people when of you inherit these traits and you have yeah. you have suppressed biology your ability to think about the situation take on board new information is a product of your ability to, to for your nervous system to function and your brain to say, Hey, I really like what that person's saying. Or, or instead you might go, that's bullshit because I've been told this that way and that doesn't work. Yeah. Unless you're prepared to entertain something, open up, be open-minded and say, this isn't working for me. I've got this kind of rigid mechanistic mindset that's telling me that that person is wrong without actually exploring why they're saying it. And why they might be able to get the changes that they're suggesting. It's a bit like sugar consumption, right? I mean, I remember your post a while back was going, I can't believe you're telling people to eat sugar. It causes cancer, it causes diabetes. It's like, maybe you're just thinking that at the moment because your energy is suppressed or you've been taught. Yeah. Certain you're not entertaining the fact that this isn't based on just pulling something out of the air and saying something controversial. It's actually based upon experience, understanding the biology and the science behind it. Not not just saying, oh, you know, you you shouldn't cross the road because you get run over by a car. Well, actually, there's an appropriate place to cross the road. You know, there's mm. there's ways that to do things. Uh, people don't people switch on. You know, they they pick up on a certain narrative. Sugar, well, that's bad. That causes diabetes. That causes cancer. And, well, mm. actually, the data is to support that. Um, so why are you saying that? And it's just this this kind of uh, it's part of the integrative holistic mindset that. People say that sugar is really, really bad for you. And yes, 
eating excess sugar without any other nutrients on his own. Yeah, of course. It's yeah. a bit like eating, a, you know, uh, loads of fat all day long without eating yeah. anything else. There's context and nuances to everything. And I think your ability to pick up that new information is partly part of your inheritance, part of your environment, and part of your, uh, you know, your biology to, to pick mm. up and say, yeah, I'm open-minded enough to deal with this. I think I've probably rambled on enough on that. So well, I was going to say, let's cycle back to uh, something you were talking about, which is diet. Let's talk about, because I think this will be relevant to a lot, a lot of the women that are listening, myself included, because I've done all these. So let's talk about some of the fashionable diets that women are on, because they believe that, one, they're good for weight loss, which they are because they're literally just starving themselves, but it's not good for anything else. And they think that, you know, like um, a lot of women will say, for example, do carnivore and then their digestive issues improve. So keto, carnivore, low carb, fasting, low calories. So let's talk about why all of these different types of diets are going to contribute to this estrogen dominance and it's funny slow that- metabolism. Yeah, I, I remember putting a post up just a week or two ago and the amount of people that PM me and said, I did carnivore, I did keto for a year and I'm kind of worse than when I first started. Mm. And it's like, there is, you know, the whole carnivore keto thing, it kind of ties into the logical fallacy about perhaps, you know, a long time ago when there wasn't much nutrition around, there were heavy periods of winter, for example, perhaps there wasn't much fruit around, there wasn't much carbohydrate, you would have had to have gone into this kind of, preserved meats you know perhaps that's all you had available uh and it's kind of invoking that kind of naturalistic fallacy about the way things they were mm. should be the way that they're driving now and it's like the, the world has changed almost exponentially from where we were from that time we have more chronic stresses more psychological stresses physiological stresses and to to try and take a diet that perhaps might have had some context you know millennia ago mm. is problematic because a, that we know, I think I put a quote up the other day by Albert St. George, who said, without energy, there is no life. Mm. Uh, and and that's, that's, that, 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 to consider that point is that there, there was also no function without energy. And to the extent that you try falling back on a stress response. So, for example, keto, low carb, carnivore, whatever it is, it has this very similar context of lack of carbohydrates. Mm. Now, people will always use that notion of, Carbs aren't essential because you can make them from proteins and fats. And that tends to ignore the very concept of what is efficient physiology and what we've evolved to to use carbohydrates. It's efficient and it has a self-regulating cycle, which we talked about with the carbon dioxide production. When you use carbohydrates, you produce more uh, available carbon dioxide. And that means the aerobic system functions very, very well, because when you have adequate carbon dioxide available in the system, you tend to dissociate oxygen. So the oxidative machinery that uses fats and carbohydrates as a fuel is maintained. When you kind of go on this low carbohydrate diet, and not to say that people don't see some very interesting, perhaps very positive short term gains, you Mm. perhaps lose a bit of weight, which could be water weight, which could Mm. be carbohydrate that's being stored in the liver. You may burn fat off for a fuel for a period of time, but that's not an efficient form of physiology. And you are falling back on gluconeogenesis, which is basically the liberation and conversion of fats and sometimes proteins into glucose to be used as a fuel. Mm. Now, that doesn't produce as much uh, carbon dioxide. So that becomes a, a, a bit of a stressor. And to the extent that you keep breaking down fats as a fuel, you produce lipid peroxides. So it's kind of a bit like if you're burning your petrol in the engine, you have all these kind of uh, compounds that go into the air. 
that are pretty damaging to human physiology. Now, lipid peroxides and, and, and oxidation of fatty acids has a certain um, effect on physiology. It kind of uh, increases the amount of vitamin E that you need to stop uh, excess oxidation. It uh, perhaps uh, increases the amount of glutathione that's being needed, another antioxidant. So the amount of burden on the antioxidant system is increased substantially. And to the extent that you can switch or fluctuate between using carbohydrates and fats as a fuel is the, is for me, is the, uh, the, I've lost the word I'm trying to think of. It's, it's basically the, <laughs> I talk a lot. I need some food. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's the, it's the ideal efficient metabolism is mm. metabolic flexibility. So mm. for example, cardiac tissue is well known to use, more fatty acids than it is carbohydrates. But at the same time, it relies on that ability to, to switch between carbohydrate metabolism and fatty acid oxidation. And when you see in the diabetic hearts and obese hearts is they tend to be burning up more fats and carbohydrates because they can't use glucose efficiently. You'll see higher unsaturated fatty acids in this cardiac tissue. You'll see higher uh, end products and lipid peroxides and also the upregulation of genes for, for utilizing fatty acids. And this is where the problems can occur. And, you know, the glucose fatty acid cycle, the Randall cycle kind of predicts that is that you get stuck in this kind of fat burning kind of mode. It has an effect on the system that's not efficient and can degrade biology, particularly the aerobic machinery, which is the same thing that estrogen affects. And when you start uh, breaking down the aerobic physiology, you have complex one through to five where you produce your energy as the five, four tend to go. And then you start... Uh, increasing the damage because you can't use glucose as a fuel within this kind of aerobic mechanism. And also it becomes difficult to use fats and this cyclical kind of vicious circle of being uh, burning fats as a fuel mm. increases the damage further. And that's why these, these diets do have a beneficial effect and the perception on a short term is very, very good. But how that maintains over a year, two years, when you're in a stressful environment, your need for liver function is increased. Your need to maintain thyroid function is increased. That all becomes diminished. Uh, and, you know, there are some plenty of studies that show low carbohydrate ketogenic diets have increased uh, uh, the likelihood of going hypothyroid. And mm. to the extent that you're not getting enough carbohydrate, sometimes calories in as well, will mm. suppress the amount of T3 that's available, the, the active form of thyroid hormone. You may see the... the, the uh, the thyroid stimulating hormone increase, but to the extent that you're in a stress response will dictate whether that actually occurs or not. Because mm. during stress, malnutrition, any form of stress, chronic from you know physical, chemical, emotional stress will suppress how much TSH is being produced. So mm. someone will go to the doctors, have their thyroid test, but these bloods will appear completely normal. And that's often lost on the average clinician, the effect of mm. stress on thyroid physiology and therefore the expression of these low thyroid symptoms. Mm. Yeah. So I think, you know, like ladies, just as a takeaway, like just you don't need to cut carbs and sugar and do these really low calorie diets. You know, I mean, I remember back when I did them, I had irregular periods that were painful, um, you know, I had a miscarriage, you know, all sorts of bad things, but I never ever linked it back to, you know, and I thought that I was doing well, like I thought that I was doing what the, you know, I was doing everything basically the fitness industry said, you know, like lots of green veggies, I was eating clean almonds, white fish, salmon, flaxseed yeah. oil, egg white omelets for breakfast, almond milk, 
you know, it's another thing. I see so many women cutting out dairy, like especially ones that, you know, like PCOS and endometriosis, they're told that they should cut out dairy, which is crazy. You know, all these restrictive, sorry, what were you saying? No, no, I was just, I'm nodding my head. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, I think number one is stop doing restrictive diets. Like you need to adequately fuel your body and get enough calories in really. Like that's number one. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there can be certainly a rationale for eating less carbohydrates to start with. Mm-hmm. You know, some people take that message and go, oh, yeah, carbohydrates. <laughs> and, you know, I've had, I've had some clients that have sent me pictures. They go, they've eaten a big marshmallow cake. They've had a big glass of orange juice. Yeah. Of bears. It's like, okay, that's great that you're taking it on board, but your ability to use carbohydrate at the moment yeah. is a product of your physiology. And you can't use glucose that well at the moment mm. uh, or even fructose that well. So, you know, taking it in slowly and you know having a piece of fruit with a piece of cheese for breakfast for example yeah you know you've got adequate potassium there you you're able to kind of uh utilize the sugar a little bit slower than it's in its kind of kind of uh Mm. uh, more refined form that's taken on its own you know there are a context to it but it's Mm. like some people dive in with loads and bucket loads of sugar and you know sugar is protective in the right amount yeah, and I think too, like nutrient, like mostly in my, if I look at my diet, the majority of the sugars I get come from fresh orange juice, lots of fruit, um, and then I have honey and I have white sugar. You know, sometimes I'll have a Coke, but it's like you say, I'm not smashing back. I'll have fudge, but it's yeah. the majority is, like you say, from the fruit and the juice, which has that potassium, which uh, my understanding is it helps to push glucose into the cell, so reducing the actual insulin response. Yeah, and that's is you know just cutting out sugar because it's showing up in the urine doesn't mean that it's not being used. It's just the ability to use it is is mm. compromised. So you still need sugar, uh, particularly mm. glucose, sucrose, whatever it is. And you know, to the extent that you have just sugar on its own, may have the negative effect. If you're adding adequate protein and carb uh, and fat with it, can mm. have a slowing of slowing effect on it. And that's why I think the glycemic index is kind of a bit of bunk sometimes because it's like. Well, okay, who's having the orange? In fact, orange juice isn't that high on the glycemic. Yeah, it's like 50-something, isn't it? Yeah, it's low. Yeah. And if you're, if you're having it, you're still potassium in there, which helps yeah. you to regulate glucose. It's, you're probably having a glass of orange juice with some eggs or something, right? It's yeah. like it's not really metabolized in the way that you think it is. I think the other point as well is that the ability to use insulin and regulate glucose response is pancreatic function. And there is so, there's so much research that shows that pancreatic function is, is diminished substantially when you don't have enough thyroid function. Mm-hmm. And whether that thyroid is uh, a state of being functionally suppressed through stress and the foods that you're eating, uh, or is actually you are actually genuinely low in thyroid hormone, needs to be elucidated. But when you, st- when you start to improve those markers, whether it's diet or adequate thyroid hormone or manage your stress levels, then you'll see the glucose response improve. Mm. The pancreas, and we talk about inheritance again, they're actually, you know, people always go, well, type 1 diabetes, how does it come out? How does it come about? Well, you know, there's, there are many things, perhaps it's a viral insult, perhaps it's some kind of stress and damage or an autoimmune factor that may have predisposed someone. But to the extent that you're creating uh, a population of people that are stressed and their functions degraded so much, the ability for all your structures to grow uh, the way they should do during gestation mm-hmm. and then postnatally is an influence on how, how the thyroid hormone is functioning both parents. 
Mm. Now, if your pancreas may not evolve or grow uh, or, and differentiate the way that it should do. So it could take something like an illness or a, a small kind of perturbation or change to the environment or pollution in the environment that could stimulate the process of someone going towards type 1 diabetes very, very easily. Mm. So, and, and, but also with regards to type 2 diabetes, it's, people will still get less, lost on the component that it's the sugar not the ability to use sugar, but we know that when people go for type 2 diabetes checks, they're looking at the amount of glucose in the blood, they're looking at the HbA1c, and these can just be a product of, you know, how much unsaturated fatty acids are in the diet, how, how much fat is in the diet, how many calories they're consuming, are they consuming enough or too little? And you can see both ends of the spectrum mm. that can create this kind of type 2 diabetic state that isn't going to be resolved by restricting sugar. It can mm. give that that perception that blood glucose levels are improving primarily because there's no sugar available. Mm. So of course, mm. blood sugar levels are going to appear relatively normal. But then, in some cases, you know, the fatty acids can tend to cause problems as well, where the glucose, the ability to use glucose and, and produce insulin, is made worse by just de- increasing the amount of fatty acids that are being oxidized. So it, it's it's a common misconception about what the, the amount of sugar that, that yeah. is in the diet that causes the problems. It's a battle we fight every day. Okay, cool. So that's one area is the undernourishment, not eating enough carbs, um, not eating enough calories. I think the second thing that I see a lot is women are over-exercising and over-training. So can yeah. you talk about how that affects the body and your hormones? Yeah, one of, the, one of the common things is to people to exercise every single day, right, five, six mm. days a week. Uh, mm. And uh, I always kind of ask clients as a lead question, it's like, I want you to stop exercising. And they go, well, I feel really irritable. I get cold. And it's like, well, that's probably the indicator that you're using exercise as a crutch just to make sure that your body temperature is maintained. You know, you're kind of uh, stimulating uh, thermogenesis and heating the body up throughout the day. And when you get to the next day, you wake up stiff and stuff and and a bit cranky. And then you go to the gym and you kind of bring yourself back up again. And not to say that exercise isn't a, a beneficial thing. It is, and people should exercise. But going smashing out and doing intense exercise sessions five or six days a week just to support your failing physiology is not because you're missing the point of what exercise should be. It should be anabolic. It shouldn't be there to prevent uh, just chronic uh, catabolism and breaking down of structures all the time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's a, if, if you stop exercise and you start gaining weight and you kind of perhaps not eating as much, even though you've stopped exercising, that's just showing you how inflexible your body is. Cessation of exercise shouldn't lead to weight gain. Mm. Uh, primarily just because, you know, the, the amount of calories that you tend to need when you're exercising are increased. And mm. then when you stop exercise, sure, if you're eating an excess amount of calories still, mm. that can be the case. But to the extent that you're crashing down, you're uh, feeling irritable, your sleep's not doing that great. But when you start to bring those calories down and you're, technically under eating and still mm. kind of not able to shift weight that's where the problem is again it's the metabolic inflexibility and and, and exercising the smashing weights and doing high intensity exercise and not giving your uh, body the ability to recover is probably a, um, a good indicator that and your body temperature is not increasing either uh, and your pulse isn't changing is a good indicator that the exercise strategy you're using is more of a, a crutch more than something positive and building you back up 
Mm. And um, would you also say that like that excessive exercise and cardio will deplete your body of progesterone too? Because you talked about progesterone before and obviously balancing out the estrogen because you just see women all the time, you know, do they just flog themselves, under eat and then flog themselves? Yeah, th- this is a slightly different switch on this. I'm going to use the, 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 the uh, contrasting of long distance runners. <laughs> so um, it's well known that long distance and, and marathon runners have just as have more coronary artery calcification than sedentary people. That's because you, this is slightly different, but just bear with me. But that's because you get to a point where you're stressing the body out so much. You're passing out plenty of carbon dioxide to maintain the pH of the body. Um, and you're not getting enough calories in to sustain that function. Um, and so therefore um, you tend to see dysregulated calcium levels that permeate the structures of the, the heart and the vascular system because it's a, it's a stress, a chronic stress response. Mm. Now, if you pull that back to people who exercise intensely every day, you may have a similar occurrence of coronary artery calcification occurring because all you're doing is stressing the body out and mm. by hit sessions, for example, mm. Can only do that for so long because you de- you create such an acidic state by working anaerobically that mm. the cell can't function the ph level decreases uh, and the acidity levels uh go substantially up and to the extent that you keep doing that from a high intensity perspective will make the cell acidic uh and to the extent you don't let it recover can create this kind of systemic change where you rely on glycolysis mm. and that can damage the aerobic system but equally, if you're kind of involved in the longer distance kind of uh, high volume cardio. And again, you're wasting carbon dioxide because you need to, again, maintain the system at a certain pH. And perhaps you're starting to burn fats as a fuel can create these problems where you can start to see dysregulation to, to the arterial structures. So that's that's something that's not often well looked at. And I think needs to be considered a bit more. And what about because I see it a lot, too, because I was the same alcohol. Yeah, you know, I see women who suffer from really bad, you know, painful. They're drinking, you know, they don't want to cut out the the alcohol, and when they do make the diet changes and cut the alcohol out, everything starts to improve. So how how does alcohol affect the body and the hormones? Um, I guess it depends how much you've had, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the thing is, is that m- m- many alcohols, particularly your beers and wines and some spirits, act, act like phytoestrogen. And mm-hmm. phytoestrogens, again, necessarily aren't bad, but to the extent that you're producing high amounts of estrogen, you're exposed to contraceptive pills, medical estrogens, estrogens for the environment, soot in the air acts like an estrogen. Certain foods, you might be having like a plenty of uh, soy or edamame beans. Um, you may have, be having other phytoestrogens. It's the load that dictates the response, and that's how the, the response to, to estrogen can be, become problematic. Mm. There are really interesting epidemiological studies from Africa by a lady called Catherine Upson that shows that uh, children who were raised on soy formula had much uh, higher incidences of fibroids, much bigger fibroids, much more menstrual dysregulation. And it's really about cumulative load. You know, small amounts of soy here and there probably aren't harmful to anyone. But to the extent that you have a chronic overload and exposure, mm. you know, soy protein so if you're having shakes you know uh, and and all the other things that we talked about you know high stress environments will dictate 
whether the estrogens and the effects of alcohol, which also have this phytoestrogenic effect, can be problematic and harmful. And then you see the, the excess estrogen responses, whether it's edema, whether it's thyroid suppression, whether it's menstrual cycle dysregulation, uh, being able to maintain gestation, uh, infertility, and all of the other effects that are associated with it, in, in, uh, including increased cancer susceptibility. Mm. You know, I think probably a lot of women would go through the same cycle that I used to, whereas it'd be like, oh, I'd eat clean all week, you know, no sugar, <laughs> low carb. I'd drink my almond milk and then I'd get to the weekend and then I'd have some drinks and then it would be binge, you know, because you'd been restricting all week and then this cycle just keeps repeating itself or you jump on the next, you know, diet bandwagon and you lose weight and you gain weight and then your period's a mess and, you know, it's just this constant s- cycle um, that destroys your metabolism and causes you to become estrogen dominant. And you think, oh, I'm doing all the right things. Well, you're not really doing all the right things, binging. But, you know, I see women that have been really good restrictors and don't drink at all, but they still have the same symptoms, you know, yeah. or they have no period, you know. Yeah. And I think the binge thing is, is, is the problematic one as well because you go through that thing of a week where you're restricting, you're causing a certain amount of kind of, perhaps low level damage by doing the constant restriction mm. and then you go bang with this huge load loads of booze mm. you, you potentially uh increase damage which might show up in the liver enzymes but the liver becomes compromised because it's suddenly it's going like plodding along plodding along blah, blah, blah. So this big explosion of energy uh compounds like estrogens as well that need detoxifying there becomes an increased need for the b vitamins perhaps even more thyroid hormone suppressed mm. progesterone to set uh suppressed you may go dance until four o'clock in the morning, which is nothing wrong with dancing until four o'clock in the morning. Don't get me wrong on that. But at the same time that you're absolutely bladdered and you're going to eat loads of fried food that night as well can dictate the damage that you're doing for the liver. And then it gets to Tuesday where you just haven't recovered yet. And then you go, I can't wait till Friday. I'm going to go and do the same thing again. (laughs) It's a constant cycle of repeating low level and increasing perhaps larger amounts of damage to the liver where the liver becomes compromised. It can't regulate the uh, perhaps the the increase of estrogens and other pollutants it suppresses thyroid physiology the liver is one of the the, the largest sites of uh you know uh, peripheral uh, thyroid hormone conversion from t4 to t3 next mm. to skeletal muscle tissue so mm. you know th- there there are reasons why this kind of approach can be problematic to liver function over time mm. all right well let's to finish off talk about some really simple because i like to keep it simple things because you know i think when women hear this, they're like, oh, fuck, I'm so overwhelmed. Um, some simple things that I think we, women can do is, one, fuck off the stupid restrictive diets, carnivore, keto, all that crap. You don't need to do it. You know, um, eat more calories. Starting, you could, It's really simple, like Keith said, start eating fruit. Start drinking some juice, you know. Um, balance your blood sugar. Eat every three to four hours. Cheese and fruit's a great example. The raw carrot salad's another really good thing, That simple thing I think that women can do every day. Um liver and oysters so fresh liver and six to 12 oysters a week or try the liver capsules you know that's why emma and i made the saturate a plus um liver capsules if you don't like um eating liver cut back your alcohol consumption if if i mean like again you have to look at the person you know and if you're someone who just drinks very occasionally it's probably fine but if you're someone who really drinks every week and your hormones are all out of whack it's probably a good idea just to quit that for a while until things improve and then you can go back to infrequently drinking and like I'll have it try to drink on the weekend, but I don't do it every weekend, you know? 
Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're kind of someone who kind of feels the effects of alcohol after one or two drinks, it's a good sign that your kind of liver's kind of overburned. If you're mm. kind of uh, really sensitive to smells, mm. sauce, perfumes and stuff, it's a good sign that your kind of liver is, is having a hard time. If you can smell something, it's hit your bloodstream. and it's hit your bloodstream, it has to go somewhere. So that's in part some of the sensitivity that people experience. Um, mm. uh, and, you know, we're in a, a, also an environment now where everybody's over spraying bacterial sprays and all that other stuff, which is having a, a significant effect on liver as well. So we're in an environment where our nose and liver are being assaulted on a daily basis. Mm. So look, uh, an alcohol, you know, alcohol could just be that tipping point for the liver. So, yeah, it, it can be a good idea to to restrict it for sure. Mm. Um, and let's just quickly finish off, talk about your PhD and how people can um, contribute um, to that. Well, that's very kind uh, for mentioning that. Um, I, I'm doing a PhD, which is going to take six years. And my, my motivation uh, is because... Uh, there's such, you've heard me talk about why I think blood tests are problematic, but what you can see in the literature now is there's an abundance of literature that shows in, in birds, in um, uh, amphibians, and in, in other mammals, mm. there's the disruptive nature of what uh, thyroid disruptors are doing. And you're seeing it affect growth. You're seeing, you know, retardation, uh, of brain function, cognitive defects, losses to sight, sound, increases to autism spectrum disorders, mm. uh, disabilities. This is all coming around from, from high levels of pollution that are affecting how um, fetuses grow. Mm. Uh, and when you're in a high pollution environment, as I said, there can be difficulties in assessing thyroid physiology efficiently. So mm. whilst there's an abundance of research out there that support that, I want to go in and, and look at how different hormone interventions of, say, T4 versus T3 mm. can affect someone's... Uh, outcome in a high pollution area and perhaps even change the narrative mm. so my um my uh study area of study is going to be looking at what happens within in rats and how the hormone receptors are expressed within the brain how much the liver functions how much oxygen is consumed when you apply different uh combinations of different thyroid hormones i think this is particularly pertinent particularly in your area of the woods as well because there's a, a general dogmatic belief that when you go and look at someone's blood test the TSH is the gold standard for assessing someone's thyroid hormones. And as we said, there are many people that have this very clear clinical presentation, which is at odds at the blood test, but the clinician will just look at this one standard TSH and then T4 without looking at T3, because they always assume that T4 is going to convert to T3. Mm. So my motivation is to add some weight to this, because I think it's all very good coaching people, which I really enjoy doing uh, and arguing with people on the internet, which I don't enjoy doing, but actually producing some solid research that reignites the debate and shows that there are real clear differences that affect a broad spectrum of human physiology and particularly fertility that may have some very significant knock-on effects over time if we don't get on top of it and we don't start changing the narratives in medicine and society and, 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 and challenging what's going on here. And I think that's really important. That's my motivation to do it. I don't really care about having a, uh, a PhD behind me. It's actually trying to do something worthwhile and, and change what, what I think is a faulty narrative. Mm. So that's where my study is uh, uh, working on. Uh, I start next year uh, where I'm going to be looking at a, a big literature review and then working in some computer modeling uh, before I then uh, turn my uh, last three years with, within the lab and start doing experiments on the, on the brain, which, mm. which should be using in rodents, but we can make some decent uh, speculative uh, 
suggestions based upon those those rodent studies. That's so exciting. So we've already donated. So if you wanted to donate to that, I'll pop the link um, down below in the um, underneath in the, either on the video on the YouTube or in the podcast. So you can um, donate to that, and I'll put the link to um, Keith's Instagram page as well, so you can follow him. He's a wealth of knowledge, um, and I'm sure we'll have him again on the podcast soon because we love to just have a yarn, don't we? <laughs> I could ramble with the best of them, but I really appreciate you highlighting that. Thank you. Oh, no worries. Well, thanks so much, Keith, and um, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. Awesome, guys. Bye. Bye.